Well, good morning, everyone. Church this morning. And this has nothing to do with the sermon. It was just a weird experience. Uh, if you don't know, I live in Highlands Ranch, and so it's a little bit of a commute during this interim time coming up here, but uh, actually pretty simple on Sunday morning, just wide open, flying up 225. And just past the Alameda uh, interchange there, I had to slam on my brakes so I wouldn't hit a buck mule deer. It, like trotting down the side of 225. It was like the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It was a pretty good size one. I, it was it was shocking, uh, to say the least. That's not how I normally would spend my uh, morning uh, commuting up here for the the services on Sunday. Um, a few years ago, I was uh, at a at a board meeting for a, a really large nonprofit in town that uh, is a big funder of organizations, and and the organization was going through a massive rehaul of how they engaged with the community, how they were going to fund work in the community in a different way. And organization had been around for over 100 years, but some things really needed to change. And so to make this massive change in focus and approach, uh, we, about 40 of us, were up in the mountains at a retreat, board members, and it's a very influential board in the community, and then a few of us from the staff were there. And basically having deep conversations about what does it take to make these kind of changes, and, and how does that affect us financially, how will it affect how we raise money, how are we going to allocate it, differently. What's going to be the strategy for communicating to the entire community that we're changing a direction because people had become very accustomed to how we did our work and they were all used to it. And so we were going to be undertaking about a two-year communication project to uh, gain the political will of a very large group of people to make this kind of drastic changes. Well, in the middle of this conversation, which wasn't heated, but it was serious and it was in-depth, this is one woman who's a very, you know, um, high-powered executive in the community suddenly goes, Michael Jackson just died. Well, and that, you know, meant something to her, and it was a sad story, but it really was out of place in that moment, right? And it's something we could have talked about later if we wanted to, but right in that moment, it just seemed very, very out of place, it's kind of like if, you've, if you're a parent, and I have two grown children, they're 28 and 25, and uh, uh, being an interim, you've never met any of them. Ryan and his wife Tracy uh, are this close to buying a house and uh, spent some time in Chile and in grad school in Madrid. My daughter Jenna, uh, she currently lives in Hawaii. Her, her husband is a native islander and probably moving back here in, in June. And, and, uh, but I remember raising kids as a little, little, and you'd be in the middle of some really important topic and idea and conversation with them. I particularly remember situations with Jenna, it was probably a conversation about he was, how she was treating her mom, right? It's like, Jenna, you can't treat your mom that way. You have, to, you have to be more respectful. You have to listen. And in the middle of this really important concept and conversation, he goes, I'm hungry. When do we eat? Like, squirrel. Right? And we all do that, right? We're in the middle of something important. Then, then something comes in. It's like, where did that come from? We've been doing this study on the book of Mark, and what we've seen, especially over the last several weeks, is this, this place where Jesus is intently talking to them about what's going to happen to him and what it means for them to follow him. And he's gone to great lengths to talk and show himself as the king of the kingdom of God. And he's redefining for them what that means, and it's a completely different view than they had ever thought of before. It's different than they expected and he's trying to give them a sense of what does that look like, and they just keep missing the point. In our passage today, we see that play out in a really major way, and we're going to stop, start right at Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and then the passage goes pretty long, and we're going to kind of break in the middle of it. It says, They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. 
We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever you ask, whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to stop right there. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the picture I get from the way Mark writes this out for us is we've gone to this place starting in chapter 8 where the whole tone of everything that had happened in the book of Mark started to change. And, and this march to Jerusalem really seems to be happening. And we need to remember, uh, Mark was writing and preaching to uh, probably Christians in the city of Rome in, in that area in the 60s AD, uh, a group of people under severe persecution of Nero. And Mark is relaying for them, reminding them of what Jesus did and who he was and what he was doing. And and we also have the benefit of 2,000 years looking back. And we have all of Scripture. And and we know what Jerusalem represents. And so, So we can see this kind of acceleration. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and we know what is in store for him at Jerusalem. Right, so, so you keep that in mind. And we, we see that they're, they're heading to Jerusalem. They're on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus leading the way. And it says the disciples are astonished. And, and, and those that follow, so there are more people than just the other 12, are, are, it says they're afraid. And we go, what are they astonished at? I, I think they're astonished because they are following Jesus in a way and he is absolutely resolute. At this point, there is this incredible focus and confidence and striding ahead towards something. And, and they don't really understand it. But they're, they're amazed by it. At it. And I mean, have you ever followed somebody who's just absolutely confident? And they're just, they're just moving ahead. It's like, yeah, I'm with you, right? There's just kind of that sense there. But it says some of the ones that followed were afraid. What's in store? We don't know what's going to happen. Because Jerusalem is the big city. Jerusalem is where things happen. Jerusalem is where the seat of government is, right? That's, and we're heading there. And in the middle of this scenario, he says to the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be betrayed to the chief priest, the teacher of the law. This is about the third time he's brought this kind of information to them, right? I'm going to be betrayed to the priest and teacher of the law. They'll condemn me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They'll mock me, spit on me, flog me, and kill me. And three days later, I'll rise again. I mean, if you really get to the gist of it, that's what he's saying, right? This is what's going to happen. And it's going to happen in Jerusalem. And it's going to happen soon. And, and, and basically, James and John, two of the disciples, and they're all behind him, come up to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, do for us what we ask. He says, What do you want me to do for you? We want to be in charge of something. This is that scenario of, Really, did you listen to what I was just talking about? We're going to Jerusalem. 
I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. I'm going to be killed. And you're saying we want to be in charge of something. You're not grasping what I've been talking about. Another example of disciples just not getting the point. It's that, that moment of you're talking about something that wasn't the conversation. But, but this is still what they understood a kingdom to be. If we're talking about the kingdom of God, if we're talking about the Messiah, this is our viewpoint. Kingdoms have people that are in charge. And if we're close friends, and James and I were the first ones you called, if you remember. If we're close friends with the king of the kingdom, that means we get good positions of authority in the kingdom. Because that's our understanding of kingdoms. That's the way it works. And Jesus said, can, can you drink the cup I drink? And be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And, and this is a situation we have to remove from our minds at this moment, our picture of like having communion today, which is a little cup of juice served out of a little brass plate and a little piece of bread. And it's a symbol, right? That, because we know the whole story. And we say, we do this to remember Jesus, remember him until he comes again, remember what he accomplished, remember his, his ongoing promise to us and life in us, and remember the future return. That's, that's why we remember it. And it's a pretty picture, right? It's something we do and it brings meaning. And, and when we think of the word baptism, we had a baptism service last week. Had a, a tank here and a couple young men were baptized. It's a, an amazing picture of what Jesus accomplished, right? And the, the new life we have in him. But If we're looking at Old Testament imagery, which is what Jesus would have been using, and they would have understood back then, a cup was a cup of suffering. The book of Isaiah talks about it a lot. Jesus says, can you share my cup? Can you drink of the cup I drink of, which is a cup of suffering? Remember him in the garden before, from me. This this was not a pretty little picture of something we do to remember Jesus. This was a statement of suffering. And the the idea of baptism plays out in in, in Psalm. It wasn't just a a little sprinkle of something and some hardship. No, it was being plunged into calamity. Can you drink that cup? Can can you share in that baptism? They don't know what he's talking about. And, And they, in their confidence, said, yes, we can. Got this. And Jesus makes a statement, you you will drink the cup I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But but for me to grant who's at my left and my right is not for me to say. In fact, the only time it's interesting that those words exactly are used, someone on the left, someone on the right, are used at the crucifixion. And Mark says there were criminals, one on the left, one on the right, in Jesus' glory. It's an interesting picture. Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. And then it says he went back to the other disciples, and they were indignant with them, right? Because Not because they were, they were ashamed of the disciples, for, for James and John, because, well, why are you talking to Jesus that way? No, because they beat him to the punch. Right earlier in the process, in this, this movement toward Jerusalem, right, it talks about the, the disciples were arguing about something. And Jesus said, what are you arguing about? But they were too embarrassed to say because they were arguing about who was the greatest. They, they all had this view. They, they see this picture of kingdom and think, we want to be in charge. We want a position of status. We want to be able to rule over people because that's what kingdoms are about. And so... Basically now, James and John going first are probably going to get the better pieces. They're going to get the better positions, right? And so that's the fear of the other disciples. And Jesus pulls them aside again and, 
and, and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. In other words, in his continuing to paint the picture of the kingdom as something upside down from what they understand kingdoms to be, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even I, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die, and and something about my dying is going to change the whole world. And something about what I'm doing, you're supposed to follow as an example. And I know that's not how you usually see kingdoms. I know that's not how you see things. In fact, your experience living under the Gentile rule is one of oppression, and one of authority, and one of pushing down, and one of status, and of power, and authority, and greatness. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. But instead, you guys are going about arguing about who's going to be highest up in this pecking order. If I'm the king and you want to be second in command, that's, you're missing the point. And why would you want to do that if the picture is what you've experienced? I think he was basically saying to them, you've fallen in the trap of just wanting to replace a current oppressive order with you now in the place of the oppressors. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. It's not about that kind of status and that kind of glory and that kind of power and that kind of authority. In fact, he goes so far and we say Jesus is saying, I'm the king. Even the king is the servant of all. And now we let that sink in for a bit. What, what does it mean for your God to be a servant? Because that's not even how we tend to view gods, right? We see authority and power and overwhelming. And Jesus says, I, God, I'm the servant of all. That's that's a radical picture. In fact, the picture painted here, I think, in this passage talking about what you've lived under is the people lording and holding authority and power over you. And true greatness, and he tells them what true greatness is, is when you're the servant of all. That's the way the kingdom works. That's the way God works. In fact, that's who God is. Will you follow me there? And then it moves on. It says, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, sighed begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? That's that same question he asked the disciples. Jesus asked him, the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. They were on their way to Jerusalem and kind of taking a roundabout way. And going from Galilee to Jerusalem, there's a much direct, more direct approach than the way they went. And that would be going through the area of Samaria. But, but the, the Jewish and the Samaritan people did not see eye to eye. And 
So it's better to take the long way and cross the Jordan River twice and then into Jericho. And, and so that's kind of where they're going. And they're on the way to Jerusalem, a common pilgrimage path. And this is a prime spot for a beggar. Lots of people on the way to Jerusalem. And when they're on their way to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage or something, they're, they're a little more apt to be generous. And, and so this is the place. This is where this man lived. But this, he was a beggar. And he maybe had a great location for getting money, but he was a beggar, and all he could do was find a way to somehow get by. And on the way, he cries out something to Jesus that nobody else cried out. He had some sense of who Jesus is. He referred to Jesus as son of David, which was a messianic term. And nobody else in the entire book of Mark called Jesus that. And it's like, son of David, have mercy on me. And people basically said, shut up. You're a nobody. And he called that again, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and, and Jesus said, call him, have him come to me. And then they said, yeah, get up and go to Jesus. He wants to see you. And Jesus asked the same question that he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, I, I want to see. Now, if we recall at the, at the beginning of this section, chapter 8, which was, we said, kind of the halfway point of the book, and all kinds of things have happened, but the, the thing changed in that moment to marching towards Jerusalem, but also a real statement of Jesus teaching his disciples what does it mean to follow him. And at the beginning of that passage, in that section, we had a healing of a blind man, and then a healing of a deaf man, and we, in the middle of all that, we have, we have Peter's confession that you're the Christ, but Jesus saying, you got the answer right, but I don't think you understand what that means. And we have the scene on the uh, Mount uh, of, of, of Transfiguration, and we have the, uh, the disciples attempting to heal, and, and, and all kinds of things going on where Jesus is explaining them what it means to follow him, what does it mean to, to learn from him, what does it mean to be a follower, a disciple? And this healing of Bartimaeus is the last healing miracle that Jesus does in the book of Mark. And, and so sandwiched in between these two healings of blind men, we, we get this picture of what it means to follow Jesus and who Jesus is in a very different way. And, and we looked in depth at that previous passage to see that Mark, in the way he talked about that to his church, and the way God wants us to learn, is this is not just sandwiches of two physical healings. It isn't just about leaving, says he healed a blind man, he healed a blind man. No, Mark... And God, through Mark, wanted us to see this isn't just about a physical healing. This is about healing that takes place in spiritual restoration of sight. Having our our spiritual blindness taken care of and healed so that we can see things in a different way. See things in a God's kingdom way. And if we just keep these in the realm of he healed a blind man physically and then healed a blind man physically, we've missed everything that's in between. Because what Mark is really saying to his audience and to us is when we look at this question Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? The disciples gave the wrong answer and Bartimaeus gave the right answer. He wants us to wrestle with that and say, ooh, Bartimaeus gave a good answer. What do we learn from this? This is about having spiritual healing. And spiritual healing requires persistence. And we learn from the, the, the practical side or the, 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 the story side of the physical healing, we can learn what it takes for spiritual healing and have our spiritual sight restored. And, and Bartimaeus was absolutely persistent. And his story in some ways sounds like others we've seen throughout the book of Mark. Right? We had the, the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus, and, and she was a Gentile, and had, in, in a sense in the community had no right to come and speak to him and and he basically called her a dog. Remember that? But she says, yeah, I am. But, but even the dogs get the crumbs that the children's, children leave behind the table. And 
That's enough. That much of you is enough. And we had the story of Jairus, the religious leader, the man of status, whose daughter was sick when he came to Jesus, and then a little bit later he finds out she had died, and he had to overcome so much of the, of the crowds and the professional mourners and people that would prevent him from getting back, but still he believed that Jesus would do something. And, and we had the woman that had the disease of blood for 12 years, and she had lost everything, but she was going to go out and risk everything. She was going to touch his cloak and potentially make him unclean. Everybody else... But she was persistent, right? She was desperate. We talked a lot about that. The four friends who, who lowered their friend through a hole they cut in a roof so Jesus could heal them. They, they, they were persistent. They were not going to give up. They were going to do whatever it took. And, and that's kind of what Bartimaeus was like. And, and he cries out. And, and the people told him to shut up. Jesus doesn't spend time with you. Look what we're doing. He's resolutely heading to Jerusalem, and he's the king. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and and Jesus called him, and he, and he not only is he persistent, but he was intentional. It was directed towards Jesus. And it said he cast aside his cloak, and he went to Jesus. And Jesus said, your faith has healed you. It was, it was an intentional move. It was persistent. It kept going on and on. Your faith has healed you. And what's interesting, and this is a, a thing that, that Mark's audience would get that we don't get, and it partly is because the, the words we have in our translations. It says, uh, he said, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. It says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road, or literally in the Greek language, he followed him on the way. And throughout this passage, they were on the way to Jerusalem. We have the disciples on the way. We have the, the Bartimaeus sitting by the way. And what was interesting is in the first century and part of the second century, the way that followers of Christ were referred to is these are people of the way. So, so when Mark's audience hears Mark say, and Bartimaeus followed him on the way, they would go, he's one of us. He, he knows Jesus. He knew something about Jesus then that changed his life miraculously. When he said, I want to see, he gave the greatest answer you could ever give to the question, what do you want me to do for you? I think that question is a question God, Jesus asks us every day. In a sense, that's what prayer is. What do you, what do you want me to do for you? It's the, it, it, it's the most important question that God asks us and the one to which we most often give the wrong answer. Because like the disciples, we want to say, I want power. I, I want good things. I want things to go the way I want. I want you to fix this. And I want it now. I want it tomorrow. I want it yesterday. Bartimaeus, what, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. And on one level we go, well, duh, he's blind. What else would he answer? But no, 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 no. This, this was a deeply profound question. And his answer, I want to see in this context, is huge and significant. We would say, well, he's blind, of course he wants to see. No, basically, the subtext of that question is not just do you want, you know, do you want to see, but it's you're, you're a beggar. You've spent probably your entire life blind, sitting by the road, living on the generosity of others. All you have in the world is this cloak that people throw coins on. When you say, I want to see, you're willing to say, everything I've ever known, I am leaving behind I'm no longer a beggar because I'm not blind he, he, he cast aside his cloak and he followed Jesus on the way 
wherever that way went. Now contrast that with the man we encounter in last week's passage. It says the, the, the rich man who came and said, basically, I followed every law. Can, can you give me one more thing I can do? And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Oh, one thing? I'm just one thing short of perfection. One thing. But, but we learned the one thing that he lacked really was everything. And that one thing he lacked was he did not have a heart for the things of God. And so it said he went away sad because he couldn't sell everything he had and give to the poor. Why? Because that was just too much. But, but, but this man, Bartimaeus, left behind everything he had. He left behind the entire life he knew to that point and said, I will follow you on the way. It's a completely different picture of two different people and a completely different picture from the disciples who had spent time with Jesus on the way but, but still didn't get it. And this man who cried out, Jesus, son of David, and he threw his cloak aside, came to Jesus and said, I want to see. That's a profound statement. That's the answer that God wants us to wrestle with and grasp. And it has huge implications for us every single day. Dale, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. Do you? Do you want to see in such a way that you understand now why your first answer was really a bad answer? Do you want to see and let that radically transform who you are and how you see me and how you see the world? Do you, do you really want to see that way? Yes, I want to see. Well, what's interesting is, is the answers to these questions by the disciples in Barnabas revealed really who they are. And at that point, the disciples really showed their shallowness. What do you want? We want power. We want the best stuff that life has to offer in the way the world defines it. I want to see. See, what's interesting is in, in Scripture, the, how we're really defined and described is not by our accomplishments, but by our heart. And, and this man had a heart that wanted to see Jesus. He, he was willing to leave everything. And the biggest example of that throughout Scripture would be King David. Right? This, was, this was a guy that he was called a man after God's heart, God's heart but he, he, he had a man murdered. He committed adultery. He, he was dishonest. He, he used his, his power and position to accomplish things that he shouldn't have done. And, and we contrast that with that man we met last week who, who we saw said he had kept all of the commandments. Jesus said, remember the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, be honest, don't defraud, honor your parent, father and mother. And he said, I've kept all those. I've never killed anybody. I don't sleep around. I don't rob. I am honest. And David committed all of those. Yet this man walked away sad because he couldn't give it up, whereas David was called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David, and we see it in the psalm, said, I want to see. Have mercy on me, O God. Show me the depth of my sin. I want to see. I'm a confessional man. I seek forgiveness. I I, I know I mess up, but show me who I am. Show me who you are. He was a man after God's heart. And that's the contrast we get in this passage. A big passage. passage It seems like two separate stories, but we have to see them together. What, What do you want me to do for you? 
Is it about what you can accomplish and about what you can achieve and what God owes you? Or is it I want to see because I want to see the world through your eyes. I want to see myself through your eyes. I want God's kingdom eyes to transform everything. It's a powerful question. And this is not so much a statement of, so what's the next step on our journey? This is a statement of, I want to see needs to be the the consistent place where we live. That's our prayer every day. Dale, what do you want me to do for you? God, I want to see. I want insight into this moment. I want to see who I am and, and how my own life and my own sin is keeping me from knowing you deeply. I want to see how you interact and see the people around me. I want to see that. I want to see what's holding me back. I want, to, I want to see and understand how I can throw aside that cloak, which is all I know, but it was an encumbrance if I stayed there. But now I can follow without an encumbrance. There's nothing to hold me back on the way. It's an amazing question. What do you want me to do for you? How do we answer that? Let's pray. Father,